Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Hello, uh, thank you for attending. Uh, just so everybody has a glimpse of what we're experience, experiencing right now, we're looking at a screen of ourselves and having this conversation with ourselves, which is quite bizarre, um, but it's the world we live in. So uh, as we get used to the, that, I am David Friedman. I'm a partner at the law firm of Rubin and Rudman. Um, I'm also on the council of the Boston Bar Association and a former chair of the family law section of the Boston Bar Association. Hello. Uh, thanks, David. Uh, my name is Lo Stark. I'm a partner at Kasner and Edwards uh, here in Boston, and I exclusively practice divorce and family law. Kate? My name is Peter Jameson. I'm a partner at Hastings Jameson in Lipschutz in North Andover, Massachusetts. I've been a member of the uh, Boston Bar Association Family Law Steering Committee for, I think, more than 10 years now. Uh, and David and I actually have worked together on several cases, but also drafted up or written a chapter uh, on prenuptial and postnuptial agreements and marital agreements. Uh, and I solely practice in family law as well. Well, today we're talking more or less about Section 34, which in the world of divorce, there's nothing more fundamental than an understanding of 208 Section 34. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about some of the factors that we consider in the division of the marital estate. Um, and then Pete and Lowe are going to go through the hypothetical that I, we hope you received um, and discuss some issue spotting of marital assets, what are marital assets in the context of divorce, and how to spot them and how to pursue discovery related um, to those assets. Um, so in any analysis of, a, uh, of assets in a divorce, it's really, it's two-pronged. Um, the question is, is it a marital asset subject to division? And that's going to be more or less the component that Pete and Lowe will talk about. But, and then the second question is, once it is, how is, this, how is this asset going to be divided? Um, and we turn to this, uh, this, the factors identified in Section 34 to do that analysis. Massachusetts is an equitable division state. Um, equitable meaning fair. Uh, it's it, equitable not meaning equal. So we look at all these factors and we determine what would be a fair division in light of these factors um, of that marital estate. I always think of, of my children or even me as a child where um, my sister or, or one of their, my, my kids would say, it's not fair to me because one would get a uh, ice cream sundae and the other one would get something lesser or better. And um, I guess it's not equal to them, but it may be in fact fair to them. So that's the distinction I always think of when we think about Massachusetts as an equitable division state. So section 34 gives us this outline. Um, and it identifies what we've called mandatory factors and discretionary factors. Um, I've given everybody a handout that has all these factors. But to go over them uh, briefly, the mandatory factors are the length of the marriage, the conducts of the parties during the marriage, age of the parties, health of the parties, station, occupation, amount and sources of income of the parties, vocational skills of each party, employability of each party, the marital estate, liabilities and needs of the parties, opportunity of each party for the future acquisition of capital assets and income, the amount and duration of alimony, the present and future needs of the dependent children of the marriage, and those are all of our mandatory factors. 
But the statute refers to two factors as the court may consider, and those are contribution factors. It's contribution to each of the parties in the acquisition, preservation, or the appreciation value of their respective estates, or the contribution of each of the parties as the homemaker to the family unit. These are discretionary, but I can tell you, I don't know any case I've ever brought to trial um, where contribution arguments weren't made and, and weren't considered by the court. Um, in fact, in several cases, they are the most important factor of that specific case. Um, in preparing today, in fact, I can think of a case for every single factor I just outlined that during that specific case, that was the center of the case. So, you know, it's very important to consider the individuality of each case and how each case has different facts um, that may, may address uh, one of these factors more directly. Because, well, oh, go ahead. If I could interrupt you, I just wanted to add, now you, you want to consider that throughout the entirety of the case. I know that David just mentioned trial too, but it's certainly that something that would be substantial to raise at the pretrial conference or even during motion practice to have the judge get a better understanding as to major issues that require the, um, the judge's intervention. And I also wanted to add, if at any point you have any questions, please feel free to um, submit those by way of the webinar chat. We're monitoring those, so please don't hesitate to ask. Take it away. Yes. So um, what I was going to oh, that with the factors, um, the court must consider certain and may consider others, um, but the weight that they assign to any factors is, is within the discretion of the court. Um, can we post the handout that David is referring to? We will certainly try. Um, what that is, is um, this is a question we just received in the chat, and we want to make sure everybody has the handout, but um, it's also very easily obtained online. Um, all it is is a listing of the Section 34 factors and a verbatim uh, copy of the language of Section 34. All right, excellent. So um, going over these factors, I don't want to go over all of them. I think reciting them alone um, may have sent several of the people watching this uh, uh, into, into slumber. Um, but the, there are some that I did want to address. To me, um, in my experience, arguably the most important factor here is length of marriage. Um, length of marriage is so significant to the extent that it is um, one of the, the um, leading ways we can discuss the partnership of marriage or marriage as a partnership. The, long, the longer people are married, um, the more, part, more of a partnership it is. And the shorter it is, you know, the shorter marriage may warrant something like a walk away divorce or maybe even just considering the appreciation of assets during marriage. This is a huge factor um, in any divorce case. It sometimes is skewed, in fact, though, by whether or not children were born of the marriage. You know, a, a five year marriage with children can be viewed very differently than a five year marriage without children. Um, obviously, the the introduction of the children into the marriage um, may uh, warrant more of a partnership of the parties. Conduct is what I would describe as arguably one of the least important factors on the list. And again, it's case specific because it can be very important, but perhaps not for the reasons your clients want them to be. Um, conduct as into in issues of infidelity um, are often a lot of energy and a lot of expense spent for um, no real effect on the division of the marital estate. Where conduct can really impact the division of marital estate is issues of dissipation. Um, and that can be, uh, uh, there's a, a famous case uh, in, including gambling losses. Um, and 
I actually was slightly involved in that case where it wasn't even the first time there was gambling losses. It was um, husband had been told stop gambling and he did not. And he continued to lose money throughout the marriage. And that's where the court came down and gave a disproportionate division based on that kind of conduct. Um, and where I say um, that infidelity is it, it oftentimes does not significantly impact a division of marital estate, perhaps gifting things to um, a third party, like a boyfriend or girlfriend or whomever, um, could impact that. That is the, um, I'm buying um, my girlfriend a, uh, a Range Rover. Those kind of things will be looked at. And oftentimes the court will make an adjustment to accommodate for that money that's been removed from the marital estate for a third party. Um, the factors of age, health, employability, vocational skills, opportunity for future acquisition of capital assets and income, they're kind of all interrelated. Um, they all kind of hinge at the a, each party's ability to kind of take care of themselves after the divorce. So are they able to support themselves through work? Um, how old are they? Are they able to go back to the workforce? Or perhaps they're sitting on some sort of um, opportunity that's going to bring them a significant amount of money in the future. And that can be issues of inheritance, uh, trust assets. Um, all those things are kind of considered when you look at those factors. And there is a lot of interrelatedness with some of these factors, and they, and they overlap on a, on a lot of issues. Um, one of the examples where age could you know, come into play, for example, is if there's a, a, a significant disparity in the age of parties. So we have a 65-year-old wife and a 45-year-old husband. Um, that sort of age would say, well, this person either doesn't have the ability to support themselves um, because they're no longer as attractive in the workforce, perhaps that could be an argument, or don't have the ability to get jobs, that older party. Or the younger person could say, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be alive longer. I'm gonna have needs that go on for a longer period of time. Um, and these kind of arguments are crafted by the attorneys um, in a way that's compelling and shows why perhaps that division should be disproportionate. Um, I did talk about the already the opportunity for the future acquisition of capital assets. Again, um, that could include inherited assets um, or, or the, the opportunity to acquire inherited assets. Um, and oftentimes it can, can include uh, well-drafted trusts um, where the trusts themselves, and Pete may discuss this more, but the trusts themselves may not be deemed a marital asset. It may be too remote and speculative, but the court can consider that to be an opportunity of the beneficiary spouse to receive that income and assets in the future. Um, I bring up health only to the extent that um, as a discovery issue, which uh, we'll talk a little bit more about, um, Introduction, the admissibility of medical records is something I think is commonly misunderstood or not appreciated in uh, probate and family court. Um, so uh, understanding of the requirements of 233-79G um, is something that any person who's going to make a health argument and try to introduce uh, health records or medical records should be well aware of. I bring up station only because the fact when I started practicing, I didn't know the word station meant outside of a train station. Um, and so when we talk about train station, we're really just talking about lifestyle. And There's also Bill and Ted's excellent adventure to Bowie's journey. So just wanted to station. Station. All right. Yeah. That was the person they created. And it's become the um the to me, the station um or uh, as to lifestyle is an extremely important uh uh consideration in division of assets, but also in cases where um alimony is is uh, a big factor of the case. 
it, it overlaps as well there. Um, contribution, which again, we, we've described as technically discretionary, um, becomes extremely important in a lot of cases. Um, it, you know, it goes to the heart of marriage as a partnership again. Um, but it's always important to, to, uh, to keep in mind that marriages or divorces more so are not dollar for dollar accountings of contributions one party has made to the marriage. Um, I, I'm frequently seeing this argument that has uh, grown out of, I think, the Williams v. Massa case about the super contributor, this person who comes in and I, I had the big job and I was with the kids a lot. And, I, you know, even though this is a 40 year marriage where we accepted that as our roles, I should be entitled to this this disproportionate amount of the assets. I don't see those arguments being very successful, um, but I do see them being made frequently um, and oftentimes can uh, result in a, a waste of time, perhaps increased animosity between divorcing parties and, and a, a expend, expenditure of uh, legal fees. Um, to the same idea, you often see this argument saying, we were uh, the, you know, when have we separated this concept of, um, you know, and it does flow to contribution because it's saying seven years ago, 10 years ago, we separated and there's been no marital partnerships since that time. And oftentimes people reference the case Civitis, um, which talks about this. Um, I find this to be a very difficult legal standard for the, uh, that the court is reluctant to act upon. Um, but it is a it is a strong argument with merit. Um, given the facts of the case where there is a complete and utter breakdown of a marital partnership. Um, and I think that's very hard to do where there are children involved and each party still has an interaction with the children. Um, but, you know, they are arguments to show that this contribution has not been um, uh, inconsistent with a marital partnership um, over these last years. Um, and um, also as the idea of contribution, again, uh, while well, I already discussed it, this concept of inherited and gifted assets or, or trust interests that a party may have. So these are contributions, yes, but contributions from a third party that was not part of the marital estate or, or not part of the marriage. Um, so again, I think those are strong arguments as to contribution to say all these assets came either premarital or from family members and, and they should be looked at perhaps differently. Um, one of the questions we do talk about is uh, with assets that have come into the, the marriage through a third party or perhaps where they weren't earned during the marriage is, you know, how have they been uh, woven into the fabric of the marriage? You'll hear that over and over again, um, which that concept essentially means, you know, have we relied on this asset? Have we used this asset? Have we intermingled our funds with it? Have, one, have both parties contributed to it? So think of it as a beach house. And every summer, the parties who didn't bring it painted it, rented it, um, uh, paid all the bills for it, you know, and, and 15, 20 years have gone by where it's really been woven into the fabric of the marriage. That may change how the court may divide an asset like that. So that is our duller, duller part of the presentation about the Section 34 assets. Um, I managed to do it in about 15 minutes, which I think is not so bad. Um, but understanding these and how the court views them um, I guess there's two aspects. There's the what it says, but what the court really does, um, I think is a really valuable thing and something that's valuable to clients for you as an attorney to be able to offer them and let them know the reasonable, the reasonableness or the likelihood of the success in an argument like that. Peter? Thank you, David. So we've divided this program up into, into a discussion first of the overview of section 34 but also a discussion of identifying potential assets and also 
to uh, the wonderful low start discussing discovery of assets. I took the uh, opportunity to draft up a, a hypothetical and it came from a perspective of a client coming into my office and telling me a story and me in my mind thinking of all the things that we should follow up with when I heard that story. So the hypothetical, which I'll do a fly by night on if you haven't had a chance to read it, um, we'll get to in a second, but it's written as if the two individuals, one of the two individuals, Wendy or Hank came to my office and we're taking this as 100% true for the facts. And sometimes that doesn't happen in potential consults. So what I always say when someone comes to my office and they say a story about here's what I own and here's how we got it and I've got this and she's got that or he's got that or they've got that. I tell them about the marital estate and I have to educate as we all have to do as counsel. And I tell them, I say, I tell them a story where I say, I want you to imagine the day that you got married. And this is without a prenuptial agreement. This is not that type of program. This is without a prenup or a postnup. And I say, I want you to imagine that the date that you got married, you said, I do, whatever the case may be. And you went to an empty pool. And in that pool, what you did is you had a backpack and you unzipped that backpack and you poured everything that you own into that backpack and your sp- in that pool, excuse me, and your spouse did the exact same thing. And as the years have gone on, the volume of that pool has gone up as you've acquired more assets or if you've sold or liquidated or taken out debt, maybe the volume of that pool has gone down. But the end result is, is that we would call that the marital estate. There's no more from the eyes of the court in a presumptive basis, yours or mine. Doesn't It matters to a little bit whose name is on the title, but if that person has an interest in an asset, so does their spouse as a presumptive basis in the eyes of the court here in Massachusetts. So when I hear my clients come in and they tell me a list of the assets that they or their spouse own, I start taking a list and I start looking at with a very broad net what is out there. I don't automatically say that is absolutely an asset that's extremely valuable. I might have ideas about that, but I have something where I mark it and I say, this might be worth following up on. And as Lowell discussed, through the means of discovery, finding out more and digging in further. It is. It can turn into a little bit of a rabbit hole. And sometimes you have to use your discretion, and your, your experience to say, all right, well, this may not be something we should go after because it may not be worth as much. We may spend more money in attorney's fees finding out there's zero value to this particular interest. But that's what the whole process is. And there may be several layers to any given asset, which we'll go over. So I drafted up this hypothetical. I'll do a quick fly-by-night, essentially. We have Hank and Wendy. Um, they met in 99, but they got married in 2005. They have two kids, uh, Oscar and Rachel. Um, they got married in Florida, but then they moved uh, to Massachusetts. Both parties are expecting inheritances from their parents. We're not describing what those inheritances are, and that's important when David mentioned about trusts. Um, they move up to Massachusetts. When he opens a business, it's a restaurant. It's uh, 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 unfortunately themed around Stevie Nicks. No one should ever do that. Um, and it starts off with no profits. Then uh, uh, Hank gets a job in the tech sector. Uh, he, the both parties, they have uh, retirement accounts that they contribute to. I didn't specify what kind of retirement accounts. That's an important distinction to make. And Hank also gets a number of different uh, merit-based financial incentives. Um, but we didn't state what those would be. There's also the option that Frank, uh, sorry, Hank could become a partner. The parties, of course, like most people out there, have joint checking, joint savings accounts and credit cards. Uh, and in 2014, uh, uh, all of a sudden, that restaurant becomes very profitable. And there's net profits flowing in. And Wendy also has the option in the future to potentially franchise those properties. 
Uh, Hank is, is uh, as David kind of alluded to, he spent his time as the primary homemaker while well, Wendy was making her business uh, uh, go boffo. And uh, he spends his time in his off time creating a demo video game and also sets up an LLC to hold that copyright where that, uh, that uh, video game is. Parties have two residences, one primary residence and one rental residence, which if you've ever represented anyone who owns a rental property, nine times out of 10, they will always operate at a loss. Just that's how they do it and just something to keep in mind. And we'll get that in a second. Um, the parties have funded two accounts for the benefit of their kids. Um, Hank gave a lot of uh, gifts to Wendy over the years, including jewelry. And Hank, a big music fan, has uh, amassed a big vinyl record collection of 1,500 records. Take it from me. If you want to know if someone has a record collection, just ask those people who have collections of any kind. You're always thrilled to talk about them. In any event, so what I did was I put out this, and believe it or not, and I'll, I'll ask my two panelists. I don't believe that this is too crazy of a fact pattern. I have seen the uh, cases and handle cases where a lot of these different things have shown up, where you have inheritances and two parties own a business, and maybe there's another interest or a copyright, and you have uh, accounts set aside for the kids. It's all part of the marital estate. It's all something to think about and dig in further. So we'll go through this, and I think, and Lo and I are going to have some fun back and forth talking about what will we do on this situation. I've highlighted, in my mind, where I see as, as potential things to dig into. It may not turn out to be an asset. The judge may not even be able to divide these uh, interests. But they're there. And the other thing I want to bring up is that not only do you want to look into this for purposes of asset division, for instance, your client wants to get one half or a portion of that asset. But also keep in mind that in the process of a divorce case, if anyone's going to get divorced in Massachusetts, they have to file, fill out a supplemental rule 401 financial statement, which lists out all of their assets. If you are representing a client, you are going to be signing that financial statement as a member of the bar. So you have to do your due diligence. Whether you agree an asset can be divided or is an asset to be divided, you still should list it out. And the real thing that I tell people about to be careful of is that if you go through a divorce process and say you get to the end and you have a great settlement or a great judgment after a trial, and if you forget one asset and don't list it, that's grounds for overturning that judgment and revisiting it. And judges do not like that whatsoever. It's a bad look. So I am always very, very careful to cast a wide net. And so that's what we'll go through here in discussing that. So first off the list, and what I noted, I put in a little, a little nugget for David uh, to talk about the length of the marriage, is the fact that they were married, or they had met in 1999, but got married in 2005. Now that's a, an issue to talk about in terms of arguing, but it's not an asset to identify, of course, but it is something to consider. But given the fact that we have children here, I think that the judge would look at that disparity in the marriage and versus relationship it, it kind of not really pay too much attention. I think the judge would consider this to be a long-term marriage and a marital partnership. But right off the bat, we have we have issues dealing with the parties both uh, came from money and they both anticipate an inheritance. And so, Lo, what did you what would you do with that? Sure. With respect to that, so I think we want to be mindful in addition to the financial statement that Peter just discussed that within 45 days of the service of the summons, there is something that comes into play called um, the Supplemental Rule 410. It's a mandatory exchange of uh, self-disclosure documents. So it's mandatory. Certainly there are, you know, are deviations to that within 45 days and that doesn't necessarily occur. But 
the rule is fairly clear that there are these documents that you need to exchange between spouses. Um, that includes uh, income tax returns, bank statements, pay stubs, and health insurance information. So there is some information gathering that can come fairly quickly at the outset of the case. And this is even before you exchange financial statements, and it could start and at least put you at a place where you have some baseline to begin the fact gathering um, for purposes of the financial statement. So just going back to your question, Peter, I just wanted to make note of that. But with respect to the inheritance issue, sometimes folks don't know. They they have no idea. They say, okay, so-and-so has a ton of money, but I don't even know. I have no idea what the value is. They have siblings. I don't know what the estate plan the parent's estate plan is, if it exists, or whatever the case might be. So it could be at the beginning, with this initial fact gathering, you do something called a request for production of documents. You could do um, interrogatories where you ask these certain questions. You can make you pose these questions, and they're formal, and um, you're obligated to render a formal response upon receipt of this. And you could ask these very vanilla questions. Okay, once you get the information there, there's another first step that you could get. There's something called a Vaughn affidavit that you could make a request for from the other side. Sometimes there's push packs. Sometimes you want to consider a subpoena to depose the parent um, who could potentially provide for their child by way of their inherited assets, um, by way of the estate plan, for lack of better words. And then um, ultimately, folks through counsel agree to this Vaughn affidavit. And so the Vaughn affidavit would be signed by the under the penalties of perjury by the parent. It would detail, I would say fairly generally, the 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 um, the value of the estate. They could touch upon the general terms of the estate plan, whether there is a will, whether there's a trust with the beneficiary details um, uh, include whether, you know, it's a one half beneficiary, depends on how many children are involved, just generally speaking, but it's to provide enough information as to what the future acquisition of assets and incomes might be for their child. I can interrupt for one second. The uh, Vaughn affidavit is not going to be found in the Massachusetts rules. It's based upon an unpublished decision that's very, very hard to find. I usually find it on uh, lawyers' websites. It's about three quarters of a page. Um, and it talks about uh, a court in a case allowing somebody to disclose the family's assets within $500,000 of the, their estate. So um, it has been adopted by the, fam the Massachusetts family law community as a common thing to request when inherited <laughs> assets and family assets become involved. Um, but if you're looking for that, um, it, it, its genesis is, is uh, really astounding because it is uh, probably a decision that the appeals court wrote that never thought that they would ever see the light of day. And, and now it's become a, a very commonly used tool in family law. Yeah. Uh, I bet you the appeals court thinks about it precisely 0% of the time when they discuss inherited assets. Now, so, but going back to when I think of identifying a potential inheritance, I think of things on a continuum. And this is where it becomes important to find out more. If taking David's example, a 65-year-old parent and say that their, their, their child is going through a divorce at 65 Nowadays is 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 low is not that bad to make it to probably have a lot more years to go, but let's say that their estate plan is made up of just a will. Well, a lot could happen between the time of the divorce and the time that that person potentially mm -hmm. passes, and then the income or the the funds or the assets comes to that divorcing party. It's an expectancy. It's not expectancy division, it's asset division, but that doesn't mean it doesn't come to play. Now, if you go on the other side of that, either side of continuum, we talk about maybe perhaps an irrevocable trust. 
something that is structured that will automatically, with funds that are secured, pay out to one of the, the parties. That is something I think that is certainly something that the court would have to take uh, consideration of in some way, shape or form. It may not be able to divide it, but it certainly could look at it and say, oh, OK, you've got 100,000 coming to you in this trust. We have 100,000 in this account. Why don't we equalize in that way? Something that could be looked at. So moving on down the, 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 uh, the fact pattern, we get to Wendy being the sole proprietor um, at her business and funding a retirement account. Now, a lot of times you get to the business interest and business interest can be assets. We can absolutely value them. But the question that you'll hear a lot from people that own businesses or that they bring up is that there is no business without me. Um, I am the person that causes all this to happen. This is purely an income generator. Uh, and there's really no profits because I'm paying myself a reasonable salary. That's something you want to look at in terms of what kind of business is this? How much in the way of profits is it generating? Are there any leftover? Is this business transferable? We won't get into Bernier and Fair Value. It's a whole nother discussion. But it's certainly something as soon as you hear this person or I have a business interest, that that would pique my interest to jump in further and want to see more. Um, and I'll turn it over to Lo in a second, but there is a mention to a uh, retirement account. Uh, that right there also gets into how you divide certain things. We talk about a retirement account. You want to know what type of retirement account. A Roth is different than an IRA. It's certainly different than a pension. You have to look at those things and drill down further. Uh, Lo, how would you how would you handle digging in and finding out more about a sole proprietorship? Sure. So to your earlier point, you want to basically something to keep in mind when you speak with your client is they're going to have to consider a cost benefit analysis. Certainly if, you know, upon review of documents, and I'll get to this in just a second, if, if it really is that the business does not exist outside of Wendy and is not rendering profits and the like, it wouldn't make sense to necessarily expend tens of thousands of dollars to have a formal uh, business valuation um, with respect to what Wendy's interest in this pro in this property might be. So in order to make that determination, you know, sometimes you might have to consider a formal subpoena directly to the entity. Um, that's something where you could delineate by way of the schedule that's affixed to this subpoena um, to make requests as to the corporate tax returns, um, the financial statements, um, profit and loss schedules, bank, any bank statements. This is where you could also request um, the uh, statements pertaining to the retirement account, but you could do a lot here. You can uh, make a determination as to how much money is being paid directly from the entity to Wendy, um, whether there's any loan documentation, um, any health, dental, vision benefits. There's a lot of information that you can obtain from that. And you know your attorney could be able to review that in the first instance and make a determination with you as to whether or not you know it's worth taking this a step further and doing a full business valuation. Alternatively, and I've done this in the past before, I could you could confer with an expert and have a discussion and say, hi, these are the documents that have come in. Can you just take a cursory review and let me know what you think with respect to this? But that's beyond my pay grade. I would need to rely on a business valuation expert in that sense just to cover my bases and then to be able to return to my client and say, you know, let's have a call with this expert. They reviewed. It is worth a comprehensive business valuation versus not, but that's you know, initial inquiry that you have to do. And, then, yeah. and what about the retirement accounts? Um, in terms of what? How would, you, how would you find out more about retirement accounts essentially? Okay. So what would I do? Um, depending on whether, whether any documents come in from this subpoena, I could look at that if there is nothing, but I, you know, I saw the financial statement, there's an entity named, 
where fidelity, let's say, um, then you could subpoena fidelity and get documents pertaining to that. And when I, so I mean, retirement accounts, well, they're, they're, they're on face value, they're pretty straightforward because you're going to get a value. But it becomes a little complicated when you talk about things like pensions. Pensions are a little bit outdated, but you see a lot for uh, state employees, federal employees, uh, and the like. But that's something to consider because you can't take a dollar from a pension and offset it against a dollar in a Roth IRA. Those are two different taxable natures and two different uh, animals, essentially. But ultimately, I do find that those types of retirement accounts, especially if you're doing an IRA and a 401k, those are relatively straightforward. They can use those two to offset against each other to come out with an equitable division. But that's the, we also want to keep in mind what type of accounts are being utilized. So moving on down uh, the fact pattern, I also brought up the fact that uh, Hank, receives a number of merit-based financial incentives. We took away what Hank was actually receiving, but it's another thing for, the, for people, especially you know, large companies, tech companies especially, if you think about Massachusetts, very tech-laden uh, uh, state. Um, there's a lot of different creative ways that uh, these companies figure out how to uh, 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 pay their employees, especially good employees. And it could take a number of different forms, including stock options, including restricted stock units, including stock benefits, including um, guaranteed bonuses, which may be in a more of a form of income, but if it's on a long-term basis, you have to consider that in terms of what, how is the payout of that? How do we treat that? So it's always something, I, again, that brings up, but as soon as I hear a client say, well, I get some form of merit-based or incentive plans, I go, you need to detail that for me, because depending on how it is, there's different cases. One case, uh, of course, what is the name with the formula? Why am I forgetting? Bacanti, our good friend Bacanti, which if you want to have a good math uh, uh, brain teaser, take a look at that. It's a whole big uh, 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 procedure on how you divide stock options. Well, what, what, keep in mind, as a quick question, how do you handle, given the fact that you have someone working for a big company, how do you really get the information, given that you don't want to jeopardize that person? You just want to subpoena the company. Exactly. Because companies aren't too happy to get subpoenas, right? Yes, that's that's actually quite fair. I mean, oftentimes uh, I've had to consider getting the documents directly from the other party, but through counsel, but they they've you know wanted a confidentiality agreement, for example. So that's something that could be entered into among the parties and counsel to ensure that any information that's provided in the context and the pendency of the divorce remains between the parties that enter into this agreement, not subject to disclosure elsewhere. So that's something that could make um, the other side, Hank, comfortable in terms of disclosing this information. But certainly, you'd want to get a vesting schedule to make a determination as to how and in what time periods certain, um, uh, I'm like, what's the word that I'm thinking of? The, the Oh my God. Yes, the, the, the options. The options. Thank you. The, the options is the, or the RSUs um, come to you. So we do have a question. If you suspect that a spouse is not disclosing all of his checking or savings or other accounts short of sending subpoenas to major banks and small banks in hopes that one of them reveals an undisclosed account, how else can you do it? Each subpoena is around $85 just to serve, right? Well, it may be 85 to serve, but if you serve it upon like some like Bank of America, they may have a, a per hour work fee or a per page copying fee. That's right. Um, so it's again, we get back to cost benefit. Um, to answer this particular question, we, I know the three of us are not CPAs, we're not forensic accountants. 
but I know a few. And I know a couple that, you know, instead of, you know, for instance, me spending five hours at my hourly rate, you know, going through bank statements, I could hand it off to someone that I work with very often and say, why don't you take a look at, does this pass this, this melt test? Is there something going on? Should we dig deeper? That might be a better way to use those funds, but I also defer to, to, to my fellow panelists. Yeah, I think the, um, the I, I'd be curious why you suspect that the person is not, why a person would not be disclosing all their checking savings or other accounts, um, but there's certain that first step of where to look. Um, I think reviewing the statements that you do have for transfers, um, either in or out of those accounts to accounts you may not know is always a good and helpful tool. Also, tax returns. Um, Schedule B talks about uh, dividends and uh, uh, dividends and interest. So if it is an interest or dividend uh, producing account, it will be disclosed on that statement as well. Um, so that's your first step. That's your first step. Um, and then perhaps uh, the, the other steps that are involving uh, forensic or somebody else uh, could be helpful. But, you know, it's tough. It's, it's one of the hardest parts of, of what this job is when you're forced to uh, uh, play the cup game and try to find where, where the money is. And something to keep in mind, too, before you, you know, send these blanket subpoenas all around town, their bank retention, the bank retention laws only preserve these records for six years. I believe that's six, right? Yeah. Um, and so beyond that, you're not going to get records relative to what may or may not have happened 10, 15 years ago. So you want to be careful if that's something that you're specifically looking for, a subpoena is not going to do the trick. You're not going to get that information. Yeah. This is actually a pretty good lead into talking about the next uh, asset, potential asset, which is the fact that the board of directors voted unanimously to make Hank a partner. Now, it wasn't so that, that Frank, I'm sorry, Hank, I'm saying Frank, Hank, Accepted it. It just said they right. voted. Brother. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yes. yeah. Uh, but it just said that they voted to for it to happen. Now, Hank's not under the obligation to take it. Um, so the question is, will, uh, you know, where do you value the assets? When will this become something of value? And that the, the presumption, and I'll defer to my panelists, is that you value assets as of the time of divorce. That doesn't mean that an asset, you know, six years ago might have had a lot of value and now it doesn't. I mean, you could play the stock market and that could be the situation. So there is, you know, some litigation to be discussed about, well, maybe in the future, looking at the Section 34 factors, that Hank's looking at a, a windfall or looking at a lot more income or looking at an asset that could uh, turn into something very significant, especially because I could see these are things that come up in my head. Board of directors, board of directors tells me large company, large company tells me profits. Profits at 7%, pretty good, but I don't know if that's in existence now. Lo, what would you do on that one? Um, you know what? I'm trying to think of what I think in terms of discovery, obviously, you know, whether it was through the confidentiality agreement or whether we ultimately subpoenaed the company, I would want to get information as to what that future acquisition of income looks like. But in terms of keeping our pulse on that, you want to enter into an agreement ultimately and not have this open and held in perpetuity, but you would want to put in language in the separation agreement to either have a disclosure relative to any future income to the extent that there are alimony considerations that are made, or even with respect to child support, to make sure to be able to capture that to better provide for your children if there's, there are support um, obligations and considerations being made. And keeping in mind that if, if we didn't say whether Hank accepted the partnership. We would hope that if Hank is our client, tells us that he's a partner, but also keep in mind if it's a large company and we talked about this, you can sort of you know put on a continuum. It's a company like Fidelity. They have a legal department. You can subpoena Fidelity and they will just process it and give you what you need. 
Um, and it's not difficult to pull what we call a tra tax transcript to find out if, say, Hank is not disclosing he's a partner. Well, if there's a K-1 that flows to Frank, that will say otherwise. So there, there's ample grounds to jump in there. But again, the real question is, is it something that he currently holds? Um, and then moving on again, back, back to this idea of business ownership, all of a sudden, uh, Wendy's, uh, Stevie Nicks, Tex-Mex Tex knockoff uh, has, uh, has gone through the roof and she's generating net profits. So this is a, I'm sorry, yes, Mo? No, I was just wooing for Wendy. But Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks? For, yeah, okay. Anyways. But really Wendy. Let's all just agree that Fleetwood Mac is not a good day. I'm sorry, I'm just going to do this. Anyways, uh, but it's fine. Of course, anyways. But it's different that this is a sole proprietorship, which I think changes the game a little bit when we talk about how do you find out what the value is and how do you get more information? What do you, what, what do, you do on that low when you're dealing with someone who's a sole proprietor and generating a significant amount of profits? And now shifting from shifting to what is it, Bubba Gump Shrimp and Senior Farms? Well, this is, I'm just talking about the, the current operation of the singular original Lindsay Buckingham is the worst restaurant. Pete, I'm going to need your help on this one. All right, well, like, what are you? Well, I'm wondering how do you, how do you get more information about the net profits that that restaurant's generating from sole proprietorship? And that's beyond the subpoena that I initially served. Yes, you you don't you get you get let's say you get no documents. What do you do next with Wendy? Goodness, with Wendy, whether we might have to consider deposing Wendy and asking the information directly of her. I don't know if she has any, uh, if she's a sole proprietor, so I guess there's no one else besides Wendy, but you know, um, I would sit her down and have a deposition because then she's forced to answer the questions that I have under under oath. And that's, that's what I would do. And I was putting it low on the spot, but I knew that she would say <laughs> that because I never want to be on your side of a table uh, with my client, with low deposing my client. But, uh, and so then we move on, we talk about that, Wendy, this is very similar to what we were dealing with with, uh, with Hank. She has the potential to start a franchise. Now, again, it doesn't exactly say uh, that Wendy has jumped into it. And again, and we also talk about a buy-in aspect, paying money to make money. Um, I find it very difficult, even though I look at this as a potential asset and I look at it for something in terms of uh, potential acquisition of future assets and income under the Section 34 factors. But I'm not sure if I would look at this and try to create a value on this on a balance sheet. I don't know, Wendy, and, and not, you lost me when you did the abbreviation um, for acquisition of future assets and income. Did I, did I do one? I, I just never heard the abbreviation before, but go ahead. I didn't know I did an abbreviation. Anyways. Um, I don't create an asset value on that. I look at it more for the Section 34 uh, aspects to bring up to the judge that this person has a significant financial, a beneficial financial future, that things are looking good. We don't have to really do uh, a, a significant overhaul in the asset division or alimony with this on the, on the, uh, on the horizon. I did want to touch on you mentioned valuation date at some point. And I, you know, it did it did occur to me with respect to however it is that. Wendy's restaurant is being valued. If it does go through a formal valuation, that's a discussion that you need to have with your client as to what time period are we capturing. You know, it's, it can't it can't be uh, considered the value at the time of divorce because it's been valued earlier in the year, presumably, unless the divorce happens to magically coincide. It's never going to happen. So you're going to have to consider um, with your client uh, these markers: the quarter, end of quarter, um, end of year, but those are going to have to be discussions and decisions you make in considering with the ebbs and flow of the business and what you what you know of it. That's absolutely, yeah, I, I have that same discussion all the time. There's some assets that are easy to value in time. For instance, the 
checking account and the, and the savings account is a monthly basis or even to the day. Um, you know, from the retirement accounts, you might be on a quarterly basis or it might be monthly, but with business valuations or valuations of pensions or things like that, you really have to hone in on a specific date and you may love it. You may not love it, but it, but it's just, it's the nature of that particular beast. Um, so moving down, Hank has, has created a, a, a video game and he put it into an LLC. Um, we don't have, know if it has any value. It is a, uh, it is IP. Um, do we have a copy of the LLC? We do not have a copy of the LLC. A little backhanded information is that it is a, it is a video game version of uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but uh, there is, if anyone's aware, there's another game called Baldur's Gate 3, which I just downloaded over the weekend, which is a competing game. So does this have any value? We don't know. Um, but when someone says they have an LLC, again, uh, I get very attuned to that because that means there should be another tax return. There should be filings with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that you can pull up uh, just by searching the corporations division. Um, and LLCs are a very fun place to maybe put expenses or to put income. So I would definitely look into that. I'd also look into what is actually held, what copyrights are out there. Yeah, I think this issue and some of the other ones we talked about, including the stock options and uh, restricted stock units, um, they're kind of hybrid asset income kind of issues um, where they can be viewed as assets, income, or sometimes both. Um, so, you know, th these are the kind of ones where you're looking at this, but also, you know, it depends if there are issues of support in the case um, where, where that could also be addressed. Yeah. Um, so moving down a little bit further to discuss the fact that there's uh, uh, real estate, the primary residence, I mean, I, I think is what the judges rely upon is the um, is, you know, the, the standard marital asset. It's on the table. It's up for discussion, especially if the parties live there with their children. That's just something that the judges just see all the time. And they say that that is absolutely an asset subject to division. Now, the rental property that we have in there, of course, this is what David, going into what David was touching, it has an asset component, but also an income component on a monthly basis. So the party that may retain that property, if it's generating profits, that may be income for purposes of child support or alimony, and that is in the child support guidelines. But what's more interesting to me that I put in this fact pattern is that there may be an unknown benefit to a property while even operating at a loss. And I made it, I put in there the, the fact that it operates at a significant loss. Um, rental property, if it's not your primary basis of, uh, of income, is what we call passive income. And it's possible that if you're operating at a loss for many years, you may have what's called a passive loss carry forward. And that may uh, be used against other types of passive income. And I have seen uh, people in cases try to monetize that um, and turn it into some kind of benefit to a party moving into the future. That's just something to consider. That even if something that doesn't really appear to have a value, it's always good to maybe take a step uh, go a little bit deeper and maybe ask someone like a CPA or, or a professional that does this, well, what do we do with this? What's the long-term aspects here? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think those carry forwards can be found on tax returns um, and something I, I habitually do to check to make sure um, if those exist or if they don't exist, because it's just not on, on uh, 
cases where there's um, where there's a rental property, you know, people who have uh, private equity investments. Um, there's a whole host of ways that people can carry over these losses, which have uh, I believe have absolute value. Do you list it on your financial statements if you have that? I don't list them on my financial statements. Well, but it has value. But I may. I may. Could you enlighten me? I'm just wondering. Well, but I may also. With respect to valuing these properties, the real property in particular, um, there first needs to be a discussion with your client as to who's keeping this property. Is anybody keeping the property? If no one's keeping it, it's going to be listed for sale. There needs to be a discussion as to what the timing of that sale is, what time of year is important to to better capture, you know, the top top dollar on this property. Maybe folks can't wait to the spring, but that's a discussion that you need to have um, with your client as well. Um, and if one party needs to keep it, wants to keep it versus the other, and buy out the other's interest, if if that's where everything lies with respect to the general division of the marital estate, then there needs to be a um, real estate valuation to render a uh, value of the, the property. Sometimes this is something that is jointly retained, meaning both parties um, hire a professional to value and to de make a determination as to the fair market value of the property. Other times it makes better sense for each party to value it separately. One party wants to buy out the other, so they want a low value of the property. So there are a number of discussions um, to be had well relative to this in terms of timing and strategy and whatnot also. I, I heard this week or last week in court, a judge said in, uh, if somebody is seeking to retain uh, the marital home or any home, that she wanted proof um, that the party had the ability to refinance the loan to remove the other party from that mortgage um, before she would order the uh, or assign that property to one of the parties. Um, so in addition, that, that would fall under dis additional discovery you may need for your client to go out there to say, I can actually afford this and I can actually uh, remove the other party's name from this so they're no longer liable on that note. Yeah, I think it's very fair, fair point. Yes. I have a case right now where that's precisely at issue and the other party is relying on what they intend to receive by way of child support in order, in order to sustain the, the, the home. But there hasn't been any determination as to what that child support figure shall be, whether it's shared custody or not. So yeah. that's been problematic. I'm settling a case right now where both parties' names are on a mortgage. Uh, it's like a 3% interest rate uh, in a very nice town with kids that have special needs and they need to be in that school district. But uh, they want to stay in that house at least for the next two years. And so we're having a delayed uh, refinance uh, provision where in two years it'll be refinanced where we all, fingers crossed, Hope we get that back down to the fives if it's possible. But keep in mind that three fours uh, percent interest rates is really an anomaly. It's 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 a relatively new thing, and, and we're all bracing at seven, but it could go higher. So that's just a fun little aside. Um, with the eight minutes we have left, oh, we have two accounts for the benefit of the children. Again, we I didn't specify what kind of accounts. Low, low. How do you usually handle those? Um, so hopefully there is some sort of disclosure on the financial statements designated what types of accounts those are. If not, you know, request for production of documents, interrogatories, subpoenas, and the like. But certainly you want to make a determination as to whether they're um, 529 accounts or other various educational savings accounts held um, or whether they're just straightforward bank uh, checking or savings accounts. But that's a determination that obviously you need to be made made at the outset too as to what happens to those accounts post-divorce. Yeah, I would say this is one of the rare assets that are remain uh, the property of a child more or less. 
Um, courts cannot assign assets to children, um, but uh, the existence of a 529 account, um, oftentimes, the, the, I would say the standard, if not the, uh, um, the, the most common way you see this is it remains uh, uh, with the agreement that it be used for the benefit of the children. Yeah. Because there, if I'm not mistaken, there are certain taxable uh, 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 impacts relative to a 529, and it can only be used for certain purposes. And Massachusetts, keep in mind, is one of the states, I don't know how many states uh, allow for it, but one of the states that, that allows for the court to order parents to pay for undergraduate college education. And it's getting more and more expensive, of course, and so uh, parties need every dollar they have. So if they've earmarked it and indicated an intention to earmark funds, I think a judge is probably more likely to say, okay, keep it where it is and mm -hmm. use it for that purpose. That's right. Um, so just moving on, I, I will. Uh, uh, we have a number of gifts from uh, Hank to Wendy, including jewelry. And we have uh, Hank's uh, 1,500 uh, records. Uh, if my wife had the good sense to divorce me and ask for my records, I'd be very upset. But well, Lo, how would you handle that? So, uh, fifteen hundred is a considerable considerable amount, but this is this is where you would need to have discussion with your client as to a cost benefit analysis. Whether we're going, to, there are experts for all all sorts of things. I once had to uh, rely upon an expert to value a magic the card gathering. Uh, is that Mar Magic the Gathering Magic card Gathering. set? Get it right. Yeah, okay. Well, we went to trial. I had to, you know, <laughs> have the expert to testify. That was the main, one of the main issues. It was tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, yeah. Yep. And the, the cards were pristine. I got to see them. Anyway, so um, that that was an instance where our client did deem it to um, <laughs> be fiscally responsible to have an expert retained for purposes of valuing Um the collection. And so that's the same sort of thing you'd want to consider with respect to the jewelry as well as the records. When you get, this is my own person, when you get into the bits and baubles, the personal property, I mean, the, I think over the table would agree, the first thing you say to your client is make a list. Tell us what, what's out there, tell us what you want, and let's see what we can work through on this. Um, because it, it very rarely have, unless it's you know a Jackson Pollock painting or uh, 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 you know, a, a a clearly valuable piece of uh, a personal property. Very rarely do I go down the rabbit hole, and that's possible with the magic, magic gathering. Don't get me wrong. Uh, or, or if uh, uh, someone has a limited pressing of hot rocks by by uh, uh, the Stones, which I've seen one time, uh, it, it's there. So, but just keep your eyes open. But also, I, I think a lot of times you want to keep focused on what really has value and what you can go into court on very easily without spending a lot of money to determine that, okay, that doesn't, that's just a bit involved, but we don't need to really value that. Okay. Liabilities. How about liabilities? Have you had any quirky issue arise with respect to which spouse gets stuck with certain liabilities of the marriage? And how do you ensure that one paying 50% credit card balances goes, uh, does so to avoid high interest on balances? Um, quirky issues with, you know, somebody goes and, well, I have a really quirky one where somebody had incurred not on a credit card, but, uh, uh, spend money on a, uh, Ashley Madison, which was a, um, a website where you could meet, um, people to go and give you a company. And, um, and, and that was assignable as a liability to him and came off of, uh, his side directly off the top. 
Um, the the 50%, obviously, ideally, you have an asset where that, that liability could be paid from. Um, I oftentimes try to leave people as debt-free as possible um, to the extent that they have enough liquidity to go forward. Um, but yeah, if the agreement is each party is going to pay 50%, I think that's, that's very difficult. You could put in... Um, language that would allow you to go in on a contempt proceeding. Um, but what I always say to clients is my job is to, uh, to untangle you. And so I'm going to do everything possible to not leave people in a, uh, a position where they have to continue to share paying down an expense. Um, but I, I also understand that sometimes financially people, uh, that may just be a reality that people have to deal with. So strong, uh, good language to say, um, if one person defaults, this is the recourse. Um, would probably be a good way to go about it. And I think when addressing liability, the outside, I always start with well, sort of what David was saying was, was how was it created? Um, sometimes I'll see on a, on a, like on a um, uh, financial statement, just a, a company that I've never been aware of, uh, a creditor. And I find out later, well, that was a parent plus loan relative to uh, their child. Well, in my mind, that isn't a liability on the table for discussion. Whereas if you have, uh, you know, the Cayman Islands visa that is being spent for trips to wherever with the uh, special other person. I don't think that is of the marital estate or and should not be addressed in that way. So uh, certainly things to allocate in that way and look a little bit deeper on. I routinely get asked the question about student loans, too. Um, and typically what I see now is that each party would be responsible for their own student loans. That's not something that gets divided. I was just talking about for a child, not, yeah. you know, not, not for the person. No, I know. So, I just wanted to no, add fine. my two that's, cents. That's fine. That's great. Yeah. Okay. I have one practice tip I wanted to add, you know, after you have all this information gathering, I find it very helpful to work off of um, an asset schedule where I put everything on one page. It really helps to visualize and you can, you know, move things around if you're using Excel, but that's, I think it's much more helpful than dealing with, you know, the four to nine pages of a financial statement to just have everything succinctly in one place to determine what would really yield an equitable division of the marital estate. I, I could not agree more. I could not exist without asset division schedules. They're on turbo law. I think they might have a, one, an Excel floating around that you don't need the license for. I, it, it's absolutely critical. And, and it could be very helpful. Uh, sometimes if you're dealing with the case with a lot of, you know, complicated assets, you're pitching something to the judge. I sometimes just hand it in attached to, uh, you know, my pretrial memo uh, to hand it to the judge. And I say, judge, it's just for review purposes only. I'm going to take this back. But I want you to see this. This is what we're looking at here. Yeah. Um, in my office, asset division schedules are created as soon as we exchange financial statements. Like in the case. Yeah. And it's an ongoing thing you work with throughout the case. Yeah. Super helpful. Okay. All right. I would like to uh, thank... Pete and Lowe, um, honestly and sincerely. Um, I think collegiality amongst lawyers is a wonderful thing. And if more attorneys were like Pete and Lowe, I think uh, we have an even more improved bar. Um, I'd also like to thank all the people who asked questions today. It really made it more interesting. And um, if anybody has any issues, all of us have websites with our email addresses. And uh, at least I'll speak for myself. Feel free to reach out. Absolutely. Feel free. And thank you, David. And thank, thank you, you David. to the BBA for hosting. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.